We just want to see women be bigger and better for tomorrow's workforce. I want to see more women on Fortune 500 boards in senior leadership positions. And those conversations have to start with our children now. Welcome to Building Doors. In this series, you'll develop the skills to build a roadmap for success, get inspired by those leaders who have come before you, and give you the confidence to stop waiting and start building. Penelope is a multi-degree qualified professional with over 20 years experience in strategic and operational management, program, project, risk management, governance and compliance. Penelope demonstrates people management, organisational culture and communication skills across a wide demographic and range of disciplines, including her time in the Australian Defence Force. Penelope's service in the Royal Australian Navy has seen her undertake strategic level appointments in projects, human resources, safety, culture and risks, as well as being a member of the Australian Defence Force Investigative Service. Penelope can also boast the ability to drive an 8,500 tonne armed warship. From 2010 to 2018, Penelope was the Chief Executive Officer of two different organisations providing services for national and international clients in the government sector, mining and resources, oil and gas, public utilities, transport and civil construction, and she was working as a consultant. During this tenure, Penelope was a national representative on government boards for industry in matters pertaining to training and skilling, and workforce planning and development. In 2016, Penelope co-founded and now chairs Women in Power, which is a not-for-profit organisation created to advance and empower women in the industry. These days, the organisation provides training, coaching, mentoring and consultancy services to any member who seeks to be better. Penelope is currently a director with PricewaterhouseCoopers, providing expertise to multifaceted defence clients across the country. She is a sought-after speaker, an author, a national ambassador for various domestic violence, mental health and veteran-related organisations, and she is a board member for the Durack College and the Department of Veteran Affairs. Penelope is a true leader of people and operations. She has been recognised as an innovator with unsurpassed drive and passion. Her stamina, resilience and a wicked sense of humour have carried her through extraordinary challenges. She continues to reave accolades for her vision and entrepreneurship, including being named the Queensland Telstra Businesswoman's Award for Social Enterprise and Not-for-Profit, and winner of three separate categories in the National Women in Industry Awards. She's also been named APAC CEO of the Year, the winner of Canberra's Women of Spirit Award, and was a finalist in the Women in Business Awards, the National Association of Women in Construction Awards, and the Australian Institute of Management Leadership Awards, as well as being a finalist in the Lord Mayor's Business Awards. Welcome to the Building Doors podcast, Penelope. What an impactful career you've had. And just going through your bio, you've just been able to achieve so much. And actually, since starting this podcast, I've had a couple of people approach me wanting to discuss what does a transition into civilian life look like? So I've had quite a few come to me and say, I know you talk about building doors in in careers, but what about building doors into a new life or a life back from something I've known for 15 or 20 years of my life? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I do have an upcoming guest for you. And (laughs) I think not only have you built doors back and created an amazing career and done so much in 
your career, but also in the philanthropic space as well. But I think that having you on, you'll be able to provide so much insight into what that's really like and how you prepared yourself. So tell us a little bit about, I want to first just learn more about how you're able to achieve so much. How do you balance all of that? You have quite a busy life. So is that something that you've always been capable of at a a young age or how did that come about for you? So I am actually a twin, so I'd love to be able to say that I use my twin sister and she's my doppelganger (laughs) and she actually assists me in conquering the world. But unfortunately, no, I think I've always really been quite a driven and motivated person. Mm. Um, Growing up as a twin with an elder sister and an elder brother, you're almost brought into a life of healthy competition Mm. and that healthy competition allows you to then be able to motivate yourself to be bigger and better tomorrow and I think I've now taken that throughout my life my career and as well as my personal areas Mm. so that I can say hand on heart I did that or I'm proud of me Mm. but at the end of the day I actually don't think I am anything abnormal or special by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. I am just like everybody else. And one of the things that I tell people very regularly is I am just like you. I'm a normal human being. Mm. I am not Joan of Arc. I'm not Imelda Marcos, (laughs) because I'd love to be because of the number of shoes. I am an everyday Joe Blow who has just been able to build a sense of resilience and overcome adversity and forge a positive life and career path. Tell us a little bit about, I am really interested, what it was within you that helped you or I guess guided you to choose a career initially in the Navy? Because I think that's really interesting. What made you go, yeah, I'm going to go down that path? Yeah, so I saw an advertisement come on TV and it said, join the Navy, travel the world and get paid to do it. And I thought, you know what, I could do that. I didn't get into the university degree that I wanted to. So I thought, do that gap year, take the break and see if you like it. And 10 years later, I sat there and I thought, well, I'm still here. Is it time to grow up? And I joined the Navy when I was a small fish in a big pond. Mm. And after about 10 years, I'm thought, oh, I'm probably a big fish in a small pond now. And unless I wanted to be the next chief of Navy, and trust me, I wanted to obviously be the first female, I'd Mm. love to have been that one. I just thought there's not much more that I think I can achieve from a lifetime career perspective in the Navy. Mm. So towards the end of my 10 years of service, I sat there and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? And I started to understand what my passions are, what I loved, what I didn't like about my role. But most importantly, I started to think about what skills and experience and qualifications I needed to be a more well-rounded person or business identity Mm. in the civilian world. So what I did is I started training and I studied. So before I left the Navy, I got a number of degrees business administration, project management, risk management, training and education. But the other half of that is I started to look at my peers as well as my senior officers so that I could then understand what I thought were really positive leadership and management traits Mm. and then started to understudy what they did. 
and understudying those senior leaders and people that I wanted to emulate in the future started to provide me the ability of knowing what I wanted to do for the rest of my life or what I wanted to do essentially when I grew up. But it was tough. It was really tough when I wanted to transition. I loved my time in the Navy absolutely adored it and look I still love it I'm still a reservist Mm. but I must have actually applied for about a hundred odd jobs and gotten just as many knockbacks yeah and that's a really tough pill to swallow when you have dedicated your life Mm -hmm. 10 years to one thing only to be told you're not good enough to make it on the outside so I, I think I joined the Navy one off a whim but I have had military service in my family. Mm. I absolutely thoroughly adored it and I still do love it and I would absolutely say to others, go, try it, and if you don't like it, Mm. try something else. But it does take dedication. You are away from your family from and your loved ones for long periods of time. Mm. But on the upside, you are gaining skills, experience and qualifications that no one else outside of the Defence Force has. Mm. I learned to drive a warship and to reverse parallel park it at the age of 18. I could drive a warship before I could drive a car. Now, not many people can say that. Absolutely. Mm. And I want to talk more around what you said there about companies, you not being able to come out and I'll use the term civilian life because a lot of the people I talk to, the armed forces and stuff, say civilian and they'll be listening in it and identify as well with what we're talking about. But basically talking about when you're trying to apply for those jobs or you're trying to get companies to recognise the experience that you've had that just no one else can have unless you're in, in mm. that type of organisation, what advice would you give to companies that are considering taking somebody that served in the Navy, in the Armed Forces or the RAF or that kind of background, how would you get them to look at that skill set or shift their thinking a little bit? I think there's actually an onus on both the organisation as well as the individual applying for a role, and that is we as Defence Force members have been ingrained into a way of life, the military life. Mm. We have our own language. We have our own operating environment. We have been told what to wear, what to do and how to do it for so long. Mm. So for us, there is an onus to be able to impart to our civilian counterparts what we do on a day-to-day basis, but to make that or put that into civilian language. So instead of using our ranks or our official titles, we have to be able to somehow civilianise it so that we can then start talking on the same level playing field. Mm. From an organisational perspective, it's really about identifying what the key or niche skill sets that you're looking for. If it's a technical niche or technical skill set, say auditing, or assurance, things like that. They really do require formal knowledge and application of that knowledge in a certain scenario. Mm. But if you're looking for things like leadership and management, mentoring, coaching, succession planning, general risk management, you cannot go past a Defence Force person. Mm. We do those things 
every single day of our life in a heightened sense of security in operational areas. And we're not doing that as a formal part of our job. We're mm. doing that because it's necessary and required mm. sometimes to stay alive. And if we can do that on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as our normal day job, you've got an asset there that you can then utilise across a number of different areas from an organisational perspective. As a person in an organisation, it's about understanding what you want from these people. Understand what an ADF member or a veteran can bring to your organisation. But then secondly, also understand that we have been training and upskilling ourselves for a number of different years. So that upskilling perspective, we may need to take one or two short courses mm -hmm. to then get us up to speed of our civilian counterparts. And should people that are serving in the Defence Force or in that sort of career environment... <laughs> Should they be planning for their exit while they're there? And I know that sounds like a strange concept, but so many of them have been asking me this. Should I be planning now because I can't see what a life on the other side looks like? This is all I've ever known. Absolutely. When you come to the opportunity or even your choice to transition out of the Defence Force, it is a massive massive decision and it's one that's actually taken too lightly by those who are undertaking the process already. Mm. I was very unaware of the transition process when I started it. I didn't understand what my service entitlements were. I didn't understand what was on offer to me prior to leaving as well as post-transitioning. Mm. It is something that you have to plan for. And when you start planning for it, there are professional as well as personal requirements. From a professional perspective, just as you've planned to be in the Defence Force for X amount of years and to undertake a certain career, the same element is required on the outside in the civilian world. Mm. Do you want to be a project manager? Do you want to continue driving ships? Do you want to go and work in the mining and construction industries? There are a number of different questions that you have to start asking yourself and answering to make sure that your next step is a successful one, but also one that's going to drive you professionally to set you up for a career that you love. I love that. From a personal perspective, there is a number of things, and I'm still learning this. Thankfully, I have a wonderful tribe of personal and professional friends who helped me along the way, but things like Medicare cards and private health insurance and what I have to cook my own meals <laughs> now. And there are a number of different things from a personal perspective that you start thinking, oh, God, I actually have to grow up. Mm. And all of these things you know about in the forces, but you've known about them at a lesser extent. Now you have to do them 100% of the time. I'm interested as well, those personal struggles of just adapting to life, but what were some of the biggest challenges? If you look back now on your transition, what were some of the biggest challenges you personally overcame? Oh, there were a number <laughs> and I'll be the first person to put my hand up and say, I am not perfect. And my transition was probably rather clunky and very messy. So I transitioned oh, 13 years ago. I'm showing my age now. 
And I think the biggest or major hurdle that I had to overcome and that I think a number of veterans face is it's almost having to find yourself again and then redefine who you are in terms of purpose and value. And I know that sounds really weird, but from an, a Defence Force perspective, I wore a uniform for 11 straight years of my life. I wore it every day and that uniform was my identity. Mm. I was either a lieutenant or a commander. Mm. I was in the Navy and I was part of the Defence Force. So the minute that you're taken out of that environment and you're not wearing that uniform anymore, it's almost as if you've lost your identity. So it's about what is my self-worth now and what is my place in society? Mm. The loss of that military identity is something that I definitely wasn't prepared for. And in my discussions with a number of veterans who have or are transitioning, they are not prepared for it either. But I think the key to overcome that is to really understand what your passions are, what you love, what you don't like, and start understanding how those passions can then assist you in that transition period. Mm. And I, I think the other part of that, in the Defence Force, we're built on a number of core values, service, courage, respect, integrity, mm. excellence. And being part of that is almost as being part of a community. They are your second family. Being in the ADF isn't just a job, it's a way of life and it's our community. So leaving it can mean that we are leaving behind support networks and friends, colleagues, family. And even though we may remain in the same region or live in the same area, we still have to learn how to identify as not being in that community full-time anymore and then learning what support mechanisms we can then establish for our new life post the ADF. Yep. I really love that you spoke about that because it sounds like it's finding yourself again. It's it's finding your identity almost in another world. Like, yes, it's the same yep. world, but everything that you've described or everything that you would be transitioning from is different to everything you've known. Simple things like picking yep. what to wear every day and just also organisations that may not have as regimented ways and processes of doing things and having to go in and figure out how to do that without a roadmap yep. on how to do it as well. So really yeah. interesting as well. What support is available from what you've learned for people making that transition? So if I've got people listening, which I'm sure I will be, that are about to go through that, what have you learned now is available to support them? Or is there much in that way of support around? There is a lot more support now than there was when I was transitioning. Mm. Before you even leave the uniform, you get a whole raft of services and entitlements afforded to you. You get people assisting you to help you draft your CV, mm -hmm. how to actually conduct yourself in an interview, things to start thinking about from a career planning perspective. There's a whole Great. entitlement area that assists you with that, and there are dedicated support agencies that assist defence people to do that. Yeah, yeah. Post-transition, you've got organisations like the Department of Veterans Affairs and a number of other areas that assist personnel with health and wellbeing matters, 
understanding if you're struggling where you can go to get further support. There's employment organisations and agencies that are catered just for assisting veterans to find new and engaging employment on the outside. Mm. There is so much available and in some circumstances there is so much that it can actually get a little bit overwhelming. Mm. So there is an element of needing to understand what you need when you need it and then seeking those services once you understand that they're there. You've also been recognised actually for your work in promoting mental health and supporting veterans as well. I really wanted to learn more about this and probably a, you know, I have a personal interest in this as as well as we um, unfortunately recently lost a veteran family member due to suicide. So, which was a very difficult time for our family. And I really wanted to talk more about it. And I know it's not always nice talking about mental health, but it's very important and very important when we're talking to this cohort of people and and just everyone in general right now, post COVID. Mm -hmm. What personal impact have you seen your work do in that space? And I suppose from your perspective, How do you feel that we as civilians can also look out for the mental health of people transitioning or returning? What are things we can be doing in that space? I guess it's twofold the question. Maybe just talk first around what we can be doing in our own lives to recognise signs and be supportive in the mental health side of things. Yeah. Oh, look, I think mental health is a unique topic but one that is becoming more regularly spoken about. Mm. And I think there is a lot of work still to go to break down the stigma about talking about it. Because of my Defence Force Service, I have been diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. and major depressive disorder. And they're things that I will now live with for the rest of my life. And, yes, I have little white pills that I take every morning that make the highs not so high and the lows not so low. They make me human. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing I try to convey to people I talk to about this is having a mental health disorder is literally a chemical imbalance in your body. It does not mean that you are any more or less significant than any other person. It doesn't mean that you're any more or less human than any other. Mm. And I love to say that we are perfectly imperfect. Now, I don't want to be perfect And I, by any stretch of the imagination, don't think I am. But I also know or I am able to put my hand up and say, I'm not having a good day. I need some help. Can you help? Mm. The support that I provide in that area, one is an open, unbiased, non-judgmental forum for people to talk sometimes a problem shared is a problem halved. Mm. And if someone can just get something off their chest, they feel a million times lighter and they walk out of that room with a hop and a skip in their step. Mm. In other areas, it's more about understanding what additional supports we can put in place for them. Mm. Sometimes it's about enabling them to be better tomorrow and it may be a very small step and as small as I got out of bed today and I'm calling that a win. Mm -hmm. So there's differing levels and I think if I help just one person overcome any form of difficulty in this area, my job's done. From an 
organisational perspective, it's really about understanding what the background of your employees is. Are they a veteran? Have they been in operational service? Do they have hidden scars that you don't know about? Yeah. Now, in most circumstances, we are not obliged to actually give our employers this information. And the way that organisations work and conduct themselves in this area shouldn't actually be tailored to just one circumstance. It should be an open, diverse and inclusive culture for all. Mm. But if someone does disclose to you, listen. Mm. Sometimes we just want someone to listen. Other times we want someone to give us a hug and say everything's going to be okay. Yep. So it's about listening to an individual and then tailoring your response to what they need. Yeah. Can I just thank you for being, you are just such an honest and open and sharing your own personal journey is so important for people listening to, to just take away any fears that they might have about seeking help. There are a lot of people that don't seek help. They don't seek help. And I do have a lot of wives approaching me and saying, look, I, you know, I don't know how to get help for my partner. He's come back. He's lost someone. There's a lot of still, I guess, difficulty seeking help. And sometimes, unfortunately, if we're not seeking help, we can be too late and it can be too late and there's yeah. no return from that. So I really appreciate you being honest and sharing that because then I hope somebody listening can go, you know what? I need to ask for help. I need to ask the people yep. around me and I need to speak and be honest. And organisations need to look at people from a holistic point of view. People are bringing their whole selves to work. What's going on, what's gone on before, what's going on in their lives, what's going on in their mm -hmm. personal lives that may be impacting. So, I think you absolutely hit it on the head then. Just as we regularly say yes to tasks at work, we have to also be able to feel the power of saying no. Mm. And the power of saying no is also the ability and the power to say, I am not perfect, I need help. Mm. And I am as stubborn as the next person. And it was really tough for me to ask for help the first time. Yeah. But every time thereafter, it gets a little bit easier and it then allows me to understand what I need, what my coping mechanisms are, but also direct certain people to be able to assist me for certain things. I know I can go to my family for things that I can't necessarily go to my work colleagues for and vice versa. Feel and understand the power of saying, can you please help? Because once you've done it once, you will think, why have I waited so long to do this? Absolutely. And then you open that conversation for others around you to ask for help. They always say, you know yep. how they say that there's no stupid question when you, you'll ask a question and other people come up to you afterwards and go, I was thinking that same thing, but I didn't want to ask. Yep. It. I feel like it's yep. the same thing asking for help. It's like someone sees you ask for help and especially in your position, right? You know, at your level, you've won multiple mm. awards. You're very, very successful and have achieved so much. And if you're happy to turn around around and go, you know what, I'm struggling today. I need help. Then yep. somebody watches that and goes, guess what, I need help too. <laughs> so I'm glad you highlighted that. I think the other part of it is 
mental health and associated disorders do not discriminate. No. They do not pick and choose certain people or stereotypes to target. As I would like to think, I'm a fairly successful person and I still suffer on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. I still find myself having to walk out of the office, walk around a park a couple of times, and what I do is I huff it out. So I breathe all of my negative energy out of my body and then re-enter the workplace when I think I am more cool, calm and collected. Yeah. But that happens more regularly than not. Mm. And it's the ability to put your hand up and say, I'm not having a good day or I'm going to have a doona day. I'm not getting out of bed today. It's actually okay. Yep. When you talk about these things to people who kind of get it or they're still on their understanding journey, the easiest way to explain it is one in four people at some time in their life will suffer from a mental health disorder or a mental health episode. So behind every single closed door in Australia, there is one person who may be suffering silently or not, yep. and that could be your brother, your sister, your mother, father, aunt, partner, anyone. So if you're sitting in a room right now listening to this podcast, look to the person left and right of you because one of them could be silently suffering right now. Mm. Absolutely. And I think if anything, this should remind us, and I think we can often forget, particularly in the corporate world, we're all human. We're all connected. It doesn't matter what position mm -hmm. you have in an organisation. It doesn't matter how well you know somebody. There is a human connection and an empathy and an understanding of being able to help and impact another person. And so if you're looking around mm -hmm. and you think that someone isn't okay and being there and allowing them to ask for help and being there for them and in any way, shape or form is so important. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us and, and, and even your own personal strategies of going out for a walk and things like that, because I think that's something that people come up with as well. If I am now yeah. in this role and I do still have my own struggles, how can I adapt into this organisation whilst also looking after my own mental health and what I need yep. to function as well? Agreed. You've done a lot of work in the diversity and inclusion space across so many different industries as well. Tell me more about how this became a passion of yours, Penn, and I suppose the impact in the change that you'd love to see through the work you've been doing. I guess I've always been a feminist at heart. And I think even just saying that I'm a feminist will have some form of negative connotation attached to it. I'm not a feminazi, I'm a feminist. Yes. And there's a difference, right? Yep. I've always been able to see through inequality and injustice, whether or not it's, say, in the gender area or in, say, the LGBTIQ plus area, whatever it is, we are all human first. Mm. And that's the key issue that I want to get through to everyone. I really don't care whether you're black, white, purple, whether you're male, female, straight, gay, it shouldn't make any difference because the way that I want to be treated as a human is essentially an entitlement to every single person in the world. Mm. 
Now, I recently, I can't even say recently, I am showing my age again. (laughs) Seven years ago, I co-founded an organisation called Women in Power with three other incredible women. Mm. And we co-founded that organisation because we were sitting at a conference and the conference was on electrotechnology and telecommunications. Mm. And we were literally four women in a room full of maybe two to 300 men. Mm. Not one keynote speaker was female and we were the absolute minority. And we just thought this is bollocks. It is not good enough. We have to change this. So we created and formed Women in Power Mm. and we called it Women in Power because of electrotechnology, the power circuit. Now it has grown to really just being and building women in powerful positions. Mm. We want to provide a forum for women to meet and exchange ideas, to provide solutions, to broaden their personal and business networks, maintain awareness of certain industries and the work that they do in them. And at the end of the day, we just want to see women be bigger and better for tomorrow's workforce. Mm. I want to see more women on Fortune 500 boards. I want to see more women in senior leadership positions. Mm. I completely agree with all of the work that's being done in the equality, diversity and inclusion areas. But we have to start young And those conversations have to start with our children now. Mm. So one of the programs that we run in kindergartens and junior primary schools where we have a little electronic kit and they learn, much like a Lego kit, they learn how to circuit a wire that makes a light glow or a fan go or a siren make a noise. And they do this all by themselves and they see three women in front of them all wearing high-vis so that we can start to normalise women wearing uniforms. And then secondly, women working in what they would think are normally male-dominated industries. Mm. That action alone starts to break down some of the children's thought processes of, I thought daddy could only wear high-vis or plumbers and electricians, that's only a man's job. No, no. Everybody, everywhere is entitled to do anything they want. Mm. And it's up to that person's ability, skill, motivation and passion to actually get there. That's what we're hoping to achieve with Women in Power. That is awesome. And I had another guest on, Tanya Meese, who's founded Unique You, right? Mm -hmm. And she was talking and making the joke about trying to catch the people coming out of university and going, here you go, and there's no one to catch, right? Because we haven't got enough young girls then going to university or going and doing a trade in those different areas and we need to get in there young. So one of the things I wanted to know as well, as a parent, I'm really interested in what ways can we be encouraging if we have a daughter and we're looking at encouraging them to explore careers that they may not have considered, what are some things parents can be doing? So the parents listening, how can we encourage? Because I would love to see more young girls pursuing a career in trades or engineering or whatever their their passion may be, but even going out and doing work with the Defence Force or whatever they decide to do. Mm -hmm. But how can we do that as parents? How can we open that thought process up? I think from a very young age, it's about 
enabling our children to grow up with a growth mindset. Mm. And that is, if you want to know more, go and find out more. So I'm a stepmother now. Mm. So I make sure that the opportunities provided to my daughter are equal in that one day we might all be in the garage building her next motorbike together. And then the next day we might be going out and getting a manicure and a pedicure. Mm. We also make sure that we are using it as an education tool to show what if you want to do this, go. Mm. The other part that I find very helpful is the language Mm. and the language that we use at home, at school, at work is very, very important, particularly if we've got young minds around us. Mm. So when we are talking about roles, responsibilities and accountabilities, we're doing so in language that is general rather than gender specific. Mm. If we then take that into a inclusive and a diverse arena, it's then understanding which pronouns to use. And I get them wrong all the time, mm. but I try. Mm. And it's about the education process and building the knowledge so that we have a more inclusive and diverse workforce later down the track. But more importantly, we have a community of people who are more educated and up-to-date on social issues. Yep, yep. I think it's good to bring up that growth mindset because you've got that age where kids are inherently curious and asking questions Mm -hmm. and you often as a parent, you're answering and answering and one of the things, the simple things is, well, what do you think? What can you find out? That sort of stuff I think is a really great way to get them thinking themselves and discovering and learning and problem solving and things like that as well. So that's a really good insight. Can I just ask a question that I'm really interested in as well? Your role, directing transformation and change, I actually want to know more about your role because it sounds so cool, but I don't understand it and (laughs) I want to understand it. So tell me about your role and what you do right now. I know a lot about your backstory and we've been in touch before in the past, but I'm really interested in learning more. The role that you're in right now, what does a day look like for you? Oh, so my days are very different. Mm. Um, One day I can be project managing the delivery of a new warship for the Royal Australian Navy. Mm -hmm. The next day I could be talking about flying cars and robotic drones with the Special Operations Command. And then another day I could be back in the PwC office and drafting equality, diversity and inclusion initiatives. So I think one of the best things that I love about my job is It is different Mm -hmm. and it's different every single day. So I'm a director of Transformation Assurance with PricewaterhouseCoopers in Canberra. Mm -hmm. I predominantly work in the defence industry. So the running slogan for me is that I live, eat, sleep and breathe defence and it's probably fairly true. (laughs) And what I do is I find the most complex problems and seek to find an answer to them. And I do that through transformational change initiatives. Mm -hmm. But at the other end, I assure them to make sure that the progress and the performance meet stipulated requirements. Okay. Makes sense. I get it now because I was 
obviously doing my research and things like that. And I was like, oh, there's just so much that she covers. And that's why no day is the same, right? Because that is exactly how your role works. It is diverse in what you might be doing on any given day. But I don't think I could ever be tap away at a computer nine to five type person. Yeah. And I think you will find a number of veterans are fairly the same. Our high tempo operational roles Mm. in uniform have led us to constantly being on the move and looking for what's next. So when I transitioned out and went into the civilian arena, I was like, what on earth is going to give me that same buzz feeling? And PwC has given me that because every single day is something new and I never know what I'm walking into one day to the next. I love that you've mentioned that too because you had self-awareness to go, I know that I'm not going to want to do a nine to five. And that is if someone's listening right now and you have an ex-defence background and you love the diversity and variation in what you do, you know, really think about it before you pick what your next career is going to be and go, what lights me up in what I do now? How can I transfer that and get a role with diversity and variation? And don't be afraid to ask those questions when you're interviewing is what's this job going to look like? Variation and diversity is really important in my job and I'm glad you spoke about that because that is really important to know yourself and know what you want to get out of a job because that's how it's enjoyable. So with all the work that you've done in so many different areas, if you're looking back over your life, and this is always a pretty deep question but I think an important one, what's the legacy that you want to leave in the world? Oh, that's a tough question. What legacy do I want to leave? And for you, it can be more than one pen. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) I won't make you Um, narrow it down to one. I think there's, yeah, there's probably a couple. The first one is every breakdown can be a breakthrough. And again, we're not perfect. We're human. Allow yourself to be human. And when you do falter, know that the next day is a brand new day and it's a brand new opportunity for you to pick yourself up again and be bigger and better. Mm. The next one would probably be more about paying it forward. Every single one of us in today's society are going through things which the rest of us probably don't know about. Take every opportunity you have to pay it forward and that's not because you're going to get something in return. You're paying it forward because it's the right thing to do and you know it's going to assist someone else. Mm. And probably the last one is whatever you do in life, do what makes you happy and what makes you proud. And I say that because my uniform service gives me an immeasurable amount of pride in my country and in the role that I undertake for it. Mm. When it comes to the happiness side, I know that my roles, both in PwC and in the Defence Force, provide my family and the future of our children a country and a place where they can be themselves free and without any cause for concern from a security perspective. Mm. 
that's probably what I would say as my legacy. I love it. I want to thank you for your service as well. I think that it's something in America, I see them do it a lot and I don't see us doing yes. as much in Australia. And I'm going to do that because I think yes. it's really important is just acknowledging what you've done for our country. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The other question I wanted to ask, and I need to make sure I ask it because I get asked it all the time, I know you've been on boards. Now, I get asked, actually a lot of my clients always ask me, how do I get on boards? How do I get those opportunities? Was there a strategy around it or how did you get into the board type roles? Look, for some people, board roles or directorships, et cetera, just come naturally. Mm. And that is they've attained a certain level in the business or industry arena or they've worked very hard to upskill themselves and understudy other personnel. For me, it's something that I kind of fell into. Mm. And when I fell into it, I very quickly found that I was a fish out of water. I was in a room with some seriously experienced and intellectual people and I thought... I cannot be in this room. I cannot keep up. Instead of taking that as an opportunity to just say, you know what, I'm good, thanks, and leave, I then started to understand what were the skill sets or the areas that I needed to prove on. Mm. And the key areas, particularly from a board perspective, are things like financial acumen, strategy, relational and cultural relationships, And then last but not least is understanding what role they actually want you to undertake. Is it a generalist board member or are you specifically there for fundraising initiatives on a not-for-profit board, et cetera? Mm. Once I started to understand what that role was, I could then hone in on additional training that I needed or start to ask some more pointed questions to find my direction to go further. Yeah. There is no right or wrong answer. I do, I loved the Australian Institute of Company Directors Company Director course, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the three days of financial acumen that they provided has assisted me countless times um, and I do support the work that they do. But there's a number of other organisations that you can go to to upskill yourself. But more importantly, find a mentor and get them to coach you through what they think the best skills and abilities are that you need for boards. Mm. You're the second, well, actually third person to recommend that director's course. I had Mm. another friend of mine, but she's also a guest on the podcast, and she absolutely rated the course as well. And some also courses at Harvard that she's done subsequently, but she said is another good one that people talk about. Um, That's a good place to look. Yeah. Okay. Look, I am just loved chatting with you. I could chat with you all day, but and conscious we have diaries as well. So we should <laughs> also get to the rocket round. So we always ask just a few fun questions to close out okay. as well, just to get to know you a little bit better. And I'm going to try and um, make sure I can remember all of the questions. Okay. Um, so the first question is coffee or wine? Can I choose gin instead? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And are you a cats or dogs person? I am definitely a dogs person. I have seven in my family. Seven dogs? Yeah, so across the family, but any excuse to dog nap and run away for puppy snuggles, yep, I'm there. Oh, absolutely. Okay, and what about your favourite holiday destination? Uh, Europe or Asia? 
Okay. Um, I love, I've been to Vietnam four or five times now. I'd go back in a heartbeat. Lovely. Any particular place in Vietnam that you'd recommend people visit? So I love a place called Phong Nha. It's actually inland and it's all farming country, but you can do some incredible cave exploring and hiking, things like that. Yeah, awesome. And are you a white Christmas or a summer Christmas person? Definitely a white Christmas. I'm an English girl through and through, thanks to my parents. Oh, nice. And what podcast are you listening to right now? Oh, no, this is very embarrassing. Um, It's called Snapped and it's Women Who Murder. I'm very big on true crimes. Remind me to stay in your good books, Pen, because you know all the tricks with this podcast then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. And what makes you feel like you're home? Oh, that's an easy one, family. Anywhere my family is, I am. I could quite happily live in a cardboard box as long as I've got the ones that I love around me. And that includes fur babies. I 100% agree. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And goats for me as well. I have pet goats, so they'd have to. Goats? Yes, yes. Um, okay. So I would need to have room for my goats. So I probably could, couldn't live with a cardboard box or they'd eat it, really. So yeah, true. probably need yeah, a bit true. more space. Look, it was so good having you on the podcast. I really want to know, you've sent us some links, which we will share, but what are ways that listeners can support you, follow you, learn more about your organisations? Tell us a little bit more around that, if they want you as a keynote speaker, all that stuff. So give us a bit of an yeah. overview of how they can get in touch. Oh, look, there's a number of ways. There's the Women Empower website. And there's also my personal website, penelopetwemlo.org.au, I think it is. Gosh, I can't remember. I think the best way to get in touch with me is probably LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, I love LinkedIn, the best professional networking tool around. Mm-hmm. And touch base with me on that. Shoot me a message. Always happy to have a chat. Alternatively, if anyone's ever in Canberra, happy to take you out for a coffee. And last but not least, you can always touch base with me through PwC as well as the Women in Power websites. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. I really appreciate your time and just your honesty. It's so great chatting to somebody that's just able to be real and share the good bits and the struggles too because it's really important for people to hear that and know about that as well. So I really appreciate coming on the podcast. If you're listening today, can you please like and subscribe to the podcast? We love to hear reviews as well. So if you've loved Penn's episode and you want to share how much it had an impact in your life, please leave us a five-star review. Keep getting told that I have to tell people that, so here I am spruiking it. Um, And, look, keep building doors, and I hope that if we can add any value in any way, reach out to us as well and we can put you in touch with Penn. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Building Doors. If you've got comments or questions, send them to hello at buildingdoors.com.au. And remember to subscribe, rate and review. See you next time.